Uh, so here we go. Uh, <laughs> if you would, please turn your Bibles to, to Mark chapter 10, verse 46 to 52. Mark chapter 10, verse 46 to 52. There's some, there's some Bibles coming down the aisle if you need some. Need one. I think it's on page 847 in those Bibles. And today we'll be looking at um, 46 to 52, and we're ending our little mini-series on questions from Jesus. Last week, our brother Daniel considered the question of, why do you doubt? Um, And this week, we'll consider the question of, uh, what do you want me to do for you? Question, what do you want me to do for you? 46 to 52, follow along as I read. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to your word asking that you would open our eyes so that we may see the glory of of Jesus Christ. We ask that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him so that our hearts may be enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which you have called us, that we may know the riches of our glorious inheritance, and that we may know the immeasurable greatness of your powers toward us who believe to the work of your glorious might in which you raised Christ from the dead. Open our eyes to see you clearly. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So again, we're in this series thinking about Jesus. And you know, you know, given the right context and timing when we're thinking about questions, questions can be really telling. Think about it. Questions from your boss can range from where is the stapler to how do you like the way I run meetings to how do you like me as a boss? And most of us probably cool with answering the first two, but the third one might get us fired. Except for me and Jahil. We good. Um, but you, you know, a, the, the right question can really un- open up somebody's heart. You can see what their heart is about. But also, a person can learn, about, uh, learn a lot about a person who asked the questions. 
ask a certain question and people might say, that's a real hum humble, considerate, thoughtful person. Or they could say the opposite. So questions can also unveil certain aspects about the questioner. And it's from this aspect that I want us to approach this text this morning. I listened to a sermon by a popular preacher on this text, and he spoke about how the beggar was sitting in darkness, and so we shouldn't get comfortable in mediocrity, and how the beggar threw off his cloak, so we need to set friends aside and go and set those, you know, those, those friends who are holding us back, and we need to set them aside and go. And I was, he said all this other stuff, and et cetera, et cetera, and I was like, but the beggar didn't stole the show. <laughs> and so this morning, we're going to lift up Christ. Okay? So what I want us to see is that Jesus is the chosen, merciful, powerful king that must be followed. The chosen, merciful, powerful king that must be followed. So in verse 6, we go verse 46, we'll start there. It said the crowds, Jesus and the disciples, were leaving a place called Jericho. And Jesus always had crowds around him, some skeptics, some desiring to get healed, some students. Some were Pharisees in the crowd who strictly thought that uh, all they wanted to do was obey the law. They lacked mercy and justice, and they lacked really love for God. You had some scribes who strictly interpreted the law, very smart people. And then you had his disciples. And it says that they were leaving Jericho, and, they, and then there's also Bartimaeus sitting on the side of the road. Bartimaeus was the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar. Now, though begging was common in this area, it definitely wasn't desirable. He evidently was lacking financial security, living day to day off of the possible generosity of others. And to make matters worse, he was blind, literally unable, unable to see. The text doesn't say how long or how he became blind or why he was blind, but nevertheless, he was in an unfortunate, distressful state. And the scripture goes on to say in verse 47 that Bartimaeus heard Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And they said, Jesus of Nazareth, to distinguish him from other people who shared the name Jesus. So when he heard Jesus of Nazareth was in the area, he cried out. But he didn't say Jesus of Nazareth. He cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. They told him to stop, but he kept on crying. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, this is pretty significant, given how the Israelites thought of David at the time. Back then, David had a reputation that wasn't just about, wasn't about his failures, but all his great accomplishments. They recalled how he stepped up and slayed the giant Goliath when everybody else was scared. They remembered how he conquered the city and made Jerusalem the capital. They recalled all the battles God won through him. And they also never forgot the covenant God made to David. See, God made a promise to David that someone from his descent, someone from his family line, would one day become the great king of Israel. And that when this son of David became king, he would, he would restore the fortunes of Israel, crush Israelites' enemies, and then establish a kingdom of peace and prosperity and righteousness forever. 
And so for 400 plus years, people were looking and waiting for this great son of David, waiting for this king to appear. And it was the talk of the centuries and difficult to analyze. So while Jesus is doing miracles and teaching, people are constantly whispering and, and, and debating amongst themselves, is this the son of David? Could this be the Christ? Christ was another word for son of, was another term used for the son of David. There were some who said Jesus was, some who said he wasn't. And this uncertainty about Jesus' identity, coupled with the fact that Bartimaeus was a blind beggar, an outcast, was large reason why the crowd rebuked him and told him to be silent, but he wouldn't be deterred. Somehow he became, he became aware of the law and the prophets. He was aware of the teaching of Jesus, of Jesus. He was aware of the miracles. And so in his heart, he believed and cried out, Son of David, have mercy. Now some may think the climax of the story is at the end when Jesus restores his sight. I think the climax is, is, is between 49 and 51. It says Jesus stops and calls him. The blind man comes to him. Other accounts say that he was brought to him. And now look, either Jesus can join the crowd and rebuke him. Jesus could correct him and say, I'm Jesus, but I'm not the son of David. Or somehow Jesus can reveal that he is the son of David. He can rebuke him, he can correct him, or he can reveal that it is he. And so what does Jesus say? He says in 51, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? In other words, you got the right one. You perceived rightly. The Pharisees, experts in the law, experts in obeying the law, saw wrong. The scribes saw wrong. The crowd saw my miracles still couldn't see me. The disciples, eh, they starting to get it slowly. But you got it. I am the son of David, the conquering king. And he says, what do you want me to do for you? Now this is, Bartimaeus didn't see with his physical eyes, but he saw with the eyes of his heart. And this, and this brings us encouragement, right? This, this gives us hope as we evangelize. As, uh, it's a, it's a call us to pray more zealously for, for the work of missions and for the work in our neighborhood and for our own souls. Because how did this blind man, the beggar, come to see this truth? How did he know who Jesus truly was? It was the same way Peter came to confess Jesus. When, Pete, when, 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 when Jesus asked Peter, who do you say I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ. And then he says, blessed are you. Because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father did. And in Matthew eleven twenty five, 25, he says, I, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Which means, family, that it doesn't matter you go to seminary or you're in the street corner. It don't matter if you're in a fancy house in Southeast. 
or a poorhouse in Northwest. If you go out preaching the gospel and you go out praying for the Lord to open up eyes, there's nothing that can stop him. Nothing that can stop him. Bartimaeus is evidence of this. God opened the eyes of his heart. And anybody who's come to know Christ in this room and this ever in the history of the world has happened because God has opened the eyes of their heart to see Jesus. And what do they need to see Jesus as? How do we see him rightly? We have to see him as king. And some may say, cool, Jesus is the son of David. He's the king of Israel they've been looking for. Good for them. But it's not just good for them. This, impacted, this impacts the whole world. Because in Psalm 2, God promised to give every nation and the ends of the earth as this king for, to this king. All the ends of the earth are to be this king's possession. And he goes on to warn people in Psalm 2. To submit to the king, to kiss the son. Because he set Jesus, the son of David, as ruler of all. So that's why we're going through the Gospels, right? And we see Jesus showing that he has authority over all things. He rules over diseases, rules over demons, rules over the law, over people, over the winds and the ways. He is constantly demonstrating his absolute power. And then when he dies on the cross and, and raises from the dead, he, he exhibits his absolute unstoppable power over sin and death. Jesus is king of all. His throne has been established in the heavens. That's why Paul says in Colossians that he is the image of the invisible. He is the image of the God, the of all creation. For by him all things were created in and on earth, visible and whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Some of y'all got King James Version, so y'all may not be able to be on the same page. All things were created through him and before him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And did y'all catch in Psalm 89 what it said about the firstborn? Maybe y'all didn't. Turn to Psalm 89 real quick. In Psalm 89, when they're thinking about the offspring of David, Psalm 89, starting 25, he says, I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. Verse 26 in Psalm 89, he shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Verse 27, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. That's what Jesus is. And he's that forever. Every big kingdom on this earth, whether it's Russia, Rome, America, or China, every little kingdom, D.C. or Maryland, every invented kingdom, basketball, music, or school, every sphere, every place, Jesus is king over it. And it's not under debate. God has set him on the throne. 
And one day, Jesus will fully bring his kingdom to earth. And every person that has or is currently following him by repentance and faith will enjoy his kingdom forever. But everyone who has or is currently rejecting his rule will be punished by eternal damnation. This is why I say you must follow this Jesus. If you're an unbeliever, please don't believe the crowds when they say all religions are basically the same. It's not true. There are some similar characteristics, but they are definitely not the same. You wouldn't say every metro is the same because they all have doors, have seats, and stop through Chinatown, would you? (laughs) I bet if you close your eyes and step on the orange line, you will not end up in Largo. (laughs) They are similar, but they are not the same. And listen, every religion will not get you to God. He has determined how to get to him, and he has made it clear it's Jesus. Therefore, you must surrender your life to Jesus as your king today. I know grown people don't like to be told what to do. We prize our freedom. The only reason we wanted to be grown, because we thought nobody would be able to tell us what to do. (laughs) But this is not a suggestion. It's really not even a joke. You must submit to this king for your soul's sake. You are commanded to stop frivolously wasting your time, money, and strength trying to be your own king. It's a waste of time. Give up and give your life over to him. For Christians, I know that we say Jesus is our king, but do we really act like it? Your boss can give you extra assignment. You work, you might complain, but you'll do it. Your coach can tell you to run extra laps. You'll complain, but you'll do it. Your parents can tell you to clean up your room, and after the fifth time, you'll eventually do it. And yet the king of all tells us to make disciples, and we say, ah, that's not my personality. The king of all tells us to abstain from sexual immorality, to not let the sun go down in our wrath, to love our enemies, to not lie to one another, to encourage one another daily, to be merciful. And yet we try to negotiate this, his commands. He's a friend, he's a father, but listen, he's a king. He's not asking you or suggesting that you do these things. They're commands. Therefore, we must obey him at all costs, the cost of your personality, your culture, your finances, your comfort. We must obey this king because he is our king. I say this is encouragement because I, when I look at us, I see us submitting to Christ as our king. Not perfectly, but we're sort of striving. So I'm encouraged when I look out. And I'm also pushing us, myself, to do it all the more. To do it more. And while the king gives orders, he, he, also, he also accompanies 
his commands, his direction, his authority with compassion and mercy. Inside the programs, when we did the call of worship, I don't have one. Um, in Exodus 33, 19, we read the verse to one another and it said, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you the name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And this same verse is, is echoed in Romans chapter 9 when he is speaking about God's election or particular selection of certain individuals to receive mercy from the Lord. It reflects the idea that God is the owner and administrator of mercy and grace. And now, and that he could pass it out to whoever he wants, whenever he wants. Now, this idea may rub some people wrong. And I get it. Now, some who may want to go and grab a couple of books and sit down and think about it and, and talk about it and get better understanding about how he chooses to pass out mercy. But you see, the, the whole conversation about why and how God gives out mercy is not the conversation that desperate people are having. Desperate people don't have time to debate they're just looking around and trying to find where the mercy is. It's not complex for them. It's simple. He owns the mercy. I need mercy. Go and ask him for it. The beggar was sitting in pain and misery, and he was not going to let himself stay there trying to figure out this conundrum about mercy. He saw the son of David, and he said, have mercy on me. He felt his despair and said, have mercy on me. You got it? I need it. Can I please have some? That's it. You have to feel your need for it. You feel abandoned, alone, broken. You feel filthy. You feel shameful. You feel guilty, wicked, sinful. You feel your heart, the evil of your heart? Is your heart broken over it? The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and save those who are crushed in spirit. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. And he will not despise it. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit, who trembles at his word, that's who he looks to. He heals the broken in heart and binds up their wounds. He will regard the prayer of the destitute and not despise their prayer. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'm reading scripture. This is God's promise. This is God's word. Matthew 28, come to me, all who are weary. 11, 28, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will, I will give you rest. Listen, if you want mercy, go to the God of all mercies, the Lord Jesus. And don't insult him by bringing pennies or some little tokens of righteousness. He doesn't need that or one. He wants your broken spirit.
he has promised to give it. Look at how he acts towards Bartimaeus. With compassion from his very bowels, with pity in his heart, he looks at him and says, what do you want me to do for you? Notice the humility and the servanthood of Jesus. He taught about it with his words a few verses before this, and now he is teaching through his actions. There are people with big Fortune 500 companies that don't even sincerely stop for their families and their employees. But here we see Jesus, the one who runs the galaxies, stopping for a blind beggar to show him mercy. You know, it was prophesied that this king would, would come and heal the sick, raise the dead, give sight to the blind, set the captives free, preach the gospel. And he, only had to, and he only had to do these things once to fulfill the prophecy. He could have did it once and said, now listen, I did it. Go ask them about what I did. But no, he kept on doing it because he is full of mercy. I'm surprised the number of people that kept coming to Jesus, asking him, heal my son, heal my servant. And he has mercy and compassion on them. They didn't deserve it, but he's rich in giving it. So go to him for mercy. And the same open-ended statement of, what do you want me to do for you, is also given to us, his people. Hebrews 4, 15 to 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may, find, may, may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. With confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may find mercy and find grace in time of need. If you have Jesus as your king, your priest, you have inherited a lifetime warranty on mercy. And the same question that's asked to Bartimaeus is asked to you. What do you want me to do for you? And the Lord says, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, you ask what you wish and it will be given to you. Abide in his word. Seek his heart. Seek after his kingdom and pray and watch God pour out his mercy on you. When you need it. For this blind beggar, it was the immediate recovery of his sight. And that's how the Lord chose to show mercy to him. But for others, that mercy may not be so immediate. It may not even be evident. It may not be how we thought we would see it or wanted to see it. But it will come. And I bet that day when we get to heaven and look back on our lives, and we saw we was complaining that we didn't experience enough, enough mercy. That's probably the time when God's showing us the most mercy. And we'll praise God for it. The mercy seat of God is open. Do you, do you, want, your, do you, do you want your marriage to grow? Come to the throne for mercy. 
You want wisdom? Come to the throne for mercy. You want to know how to use your finances better for God's kingdom? Come to Jesus for mercy. He'll give it to you. Breaking addictions, desiring stronger relationships in the church. Come to Jesus for mercy. Take heart. Get up. He is calling you to come to find mercy. And he uses means, right? So we, we pray for it. Romans 12, 8 says that one of the gifts within the church is uh, uh, mercy. Proverbs 28, 19 says if you, he who conceals his sin won't find it, but when you confess your sin, he gives mercy. This church, our church, should be overflowing with mercy for one another. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Our church should be overflowing with mercy for one another and for those out, outside of our walls as well. God has given us mercy, and we're means. We're, we are tools to one another for that mercy also. Let's, go, let's press in and get it. And if, if you're not a committed follower of Jesus and you have not Turn from your sin and trust in him. Your greatest need right now is to find mercy for, for your souls. Look a little bit at verse, at verse 45. It's before our verses. It says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That word ransom is a term that means to buy, to buy back, to buy from a master or an owner. And everybody who has not placed their trust in Jesus as their king are owned and enslaved to the kingdom of darkness. Their master is the devil. Their destiny is eternal damnation. And their charge is is their sin. From a little white lie, a little lie, to, to, to yelling angrily at someone. All sin is against God and will be punished. And the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus. And when Jesus lived his perfect life and gave his life as a ransom for many, that means through his death, through his blood, he bought, he purchased people out of darkness and brought them into his kingdom. Brought them from under the penalty of death and hell and and brought them into his kingdom of peace and righteousness forever. If you've not received this mercy, you can receive it by trusting in Jesus again. Do that. Do that by admitting you're sinning and turning from that sin and placing that faith in, in Jesus. If you do so, there's mercy for you. There's mercy for you. And I know it's mercy because... In Jesus, because it was proved by the resurrection from the dead. His resurrection was proof that he is that forever king that Israel and the world was looking for. Every other king was taken off of his throne by death. Jesus was put on his throne by death. That's what Philippians 2 says, right? Philippians 2 says he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, 
And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. He is that forever king. Place your faith in him. He has mercy for you. And this mercy is accompanied by power. In verse 52, it says, And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. One pastor said it was the man's faith that made him well. But listen, it's very simple. I'm just, maybe I'm too simple. If it was his faith that made his, him well, then his eyes would have been healed before he came to Jesus. If it was the faith of the woman with the issue of blood that healed her, then she wouldn't have had to come and touch his garment. If it was the faith of the paralytic, he would have stood up and walked before Jesus said, pick up your mat and walk. I'm not saying faith isn't important. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Scripture says that it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and not of works of yourself. But faith is not the power Jesus is. Faith is the tool. The power is in Jesus. The power is in the great King of Kings. Jesus demonstrated his power, his power, by healing this man's eyes. If you haven't committed to following Jesus, and one of the reasons is because you don't know how you're going to be able to live for him in this life or in certain situations, don't worry about that. He will strengthen you and give you the power to live for him. He will protect you. And that power that he has will overcome every eye that stands against you. And it will ensure that you may reach eternal life. I've never seen a gang member or a drug dealer or a politician or a teacher or a parent give sight to the blind. And I've never seen any system or program or any kingdom raise a person from the dead. The Lord does that. He got up from the grave. He heals the blind. There's no power that matches his. You come to him and you will be strengthened by him to endure. And if you're a believer and have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then that power is in you through his spirit. And I pray the eyes of our hearts are open so that this mighty power that healed this blind man, the same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead, that we would know it and live by it and walk in obedience because of it. There's this, there's this true story of a group of Welsh missionaries that went to a hostile foreign village in India to share the gospel. A man and his wife and two children were converted and this agitated the village so much that an angry crowd and the, and the chiefs 
pushed them into town square and demanded that they renounce their faith in public or face execution. This man, moved by the Spirit, this is what he said. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. The chief was enraged at the refusal of the man, so he ordered his children to be killed. And on the spot they were. He then asked the Christian, will you deny your faith now? You've lost both your children. And you would lose your wife too. But you know what the man said? True story. The man said, though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back, no turning back. The chief was even more furious and ordered his wife to be killed. In a moment, she joined her two children in death. Then he asked the Christian for the last time, I will give you one more opportunity to deny your faith and live. In the, in the face of death, the man sang, the world behind me, the cross before me. And he died with his family that day. And they both, and he saw Jesus that day, face to face. And even though that family died, at the same time, something remarkable happened. The seed of the gospel began to grow in that village. And in that very same place later, that village and that chief came to put their faith in Jesus. That's power. That's power shown in those individuals who stood up in the face of persecution and said, I'm going to follow Jesus. And that's the power of the seed of the gospel that spread amongst that village and called them to repentance and save them. We serve a merciful, powerful King of kings and Lord of lords. And we must follow him for his glory and our joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do praise you that, you that you are the King of kings and that you've called us to yourself. That you've shined the light of the gospel in our hearts and gave us eyes to see your glory and gave us hearts that, was, that felt the, the muck of our sin and caused us to come to you. And we thank you that it's not by any of our works, but by faith that we hold on to Christ and that Christ has saved us. Oh God, give us the strength to, to follow you as Lord and as King. To submit our lives to you. And we ask that your kingdom will come, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.